Hey, Corey, you know that vacation you're always talking about? Uh, no. What vacation is that? The one where you go to Aspen, not for the skiing, but to see the original headquarters of the Aspen Institute and talk housing policy? <laughs> that does sound interesting. Well, I've got a surprise for you. That's great. But first, I've got a number for you. You do? Yeah. Two trillion dollars. I know that number. That's an estimate of how much the U.S. has foregone in GDP due to the mismatch of job growth and housing growth. Right. And it's a number that sets an important context for today's episode, because that mismatch is about a lot more than dollars. It's about people's lives. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. That number we talked about in the intro is in some ways a simple measure, but beyond that number is a lot more story. We'll talk about that as we discuss a recent report from the Aspen Institute called Strong Foundations. Financial security starts with affordable, stable housing. We're fortunate to be joined by the lead author of the report, Catherine McKay, Senior Program Manager with the Financial Security Program. The report points out that housing is a market commodity but is also a basic human need and a source of social benefits, contributing to all aspects of social, community, and economic life. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And as documented in the report, pre-crisis, households had a difficulty finding affordable housing. Since the report, there's been a huge income shock with COVID-19, and that exacerbates the issues. Through that additional lens, can you tell us a little bit about your report and how the current situation exacerbates those issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So using data from 2017, which was the, you know, hottest off the press when we started the project, we found that um, one in four renters are paying more than half of their income towards housing costs. And that includes not just rent, but also utilities, renters insurance, if they have it, um, you know, anything related to the upkeep of having that home. Um, Overall, looking at both homeowners and renters, it's about one in three uh, who are spending more than 30% of their income for housing. And really that translates not just, you know, thinking one in three is a lot, but a hundred million people. That is really astounding. 100 million people live in housing that their family cannot really afford. Um, We've had, as you mentioned, this incredible crunch. And all of a sudden, your housing costs are the exact same. They might even be going up because you're home more, you're using more power. But your income has gone down maybe all the way to zero. So, you know, when there's when there is a a zero in the fraction, it tends not to work out well for people. Um, And the the real challenge that um, people are facing right now is an affordability crisis. The challenge that's on the horizon is a stability crisis. Um, We know, you know, housing instability, being forced to move, living in doubled up conditions and other uh, ways of having housing, not to the point of experiencing homelessness, but having housing that you can't really depend on, it's an extremely damaging experience. It is incredibly stressful. It tends to lead to 
job losses, if a job loss wasn't the cause, it tends to lead to lower incomes over time. And it's really emotionally traumatic for children. Um, they tend to then lose quite a bit of uh, academic performance and it ends up being something that can affect a child for their whole life. So folks who are having problems before um, paying for and maintaining stability in their ho housing at this point are likely, very likely to be just in flat out crisis and many, many more of the uh, people and families who were doing okay on housing, even if it was their biggest expense and, you know, something that uh, was a challenge to keep uh, in a place where it was affordable, a lot of them are now looking at the same crisis um, without the experience of dealing with it over time beforehand. So many good points there. I think, you know, your report was great in that there's a lot of literature out there and studies thinking about the overall impacts. And you talked about the 100 million in population and uh, the, the, it's, the magnitude of the numbers are just huge. But I think that, you know, your report led into the stress that we're having now just because it, it speaks about that stability and, and how the, the effect of housing is, be, is beyond just living in a place in your residence. It's, uh, it's much bigger than that. And um, as as you think about how it affects families uh, and and then the current crisis that we're in right now, do you think that uh, the policy solutions that you suggested are things that uh, move higher up on the priority for the country right now? That is such a great question because it's something that we are also trying to really explore and figure out the answer to that while we also move quickly in our responsive. Um, we are just naturally in the middle of the part of our research cycle where we turn to looking at solutions to the problem that we identified. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm very glad that we have the opportunity to say we are not getting this report to uh, the copy editor tomorrow. Let's slow down and think about how COVID-19 uh, and the recession that's happening around it should affect the types of solutions that we are uh, recommending that people look at. Um, so one thing I do want to say is when we think about solutions, uh, the financial security program at Aspen is a little unique in that, you know, we're, we're looking at everything from the household level. We define challenges like income insecurity or uh, inability to access the safety net in terms of what the problem is for the family who experiences it. And as we identify solutions, we always start with like, what is the North Star here? What does it mean for a family that has problems with uh, affordability or stability or both to resolve them and not have them anymore? Um, and I think that what we identified as our North Star a couple of months ago actually is very timely thinking about this. Um, it is that everyone should be able to access housing that they can afford, that they can depend on, that meets their economic, physical, emotional, and social uh, well-being that supports those things and provides opportunities for jobs and schooling. Um, you know, that really is, in a nutshell, 
the set of challenges that people who are suffering now amid the pandemic, um, you know, what their housing would be able to do for them potentially in another situation. And so what we're looking at both in short term and longer term is what does it take to get to a point where that's what housing can be for people? Um, you know, right now, just a huge, huge thing is how do you pay the rent? Uh, and there is not a great solution to it other than someone pays the rent, but it's not the renter. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of discussions going on. We're recording this on May 1st. So there are a lot of discussions going on about who that should be. Um, you know, I, I think we've thought quite a bit about if the first thing we care about is ensuring that renter households and homeowner households too, but right now specifically renter households are able to stay in their homes and able to, um, you know, afford those, those homes over the longer term. It really, if you go into debt for two months of rent, you're almost certainly not going, you're just delaying the problem. Um, on the other hand, it's completely reasonable that landlords can't just give up, you know, more than half of their rental revenues or more um, without, you know, any notice or any support. So I think that that finding solutions that balance those things are really important. And, you know, too much of the conversation ends up pitting them as uh, contrary um, sets of needs. I think something that people should be considering instead is what is the what are strategies that can both help renters not go into debt, still be able to pay for their housing, even if they don't have an income right now, um, and not just push that pain onto landlords? Um, you know, I think rental subsidies are a really important tool in the policy toolbox that we may see some help for in the fourth uh, COVID response bill and that um, states and local governments are also increasingly look at looking at just because of the efficiency of it. Uh, it both solves the challenge and also is just a single payment that then the family makes to do what they usually do. You know, I think, a, you know, a core point of what you're saying here is just how interconnected uh, everything is, right? So how interconnected the renter and the landlord are, but it's not just that relationship between those two groups. You know, housing is an economic driver as well. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of investors in, in housing, uh, investors in securities and housing. Everything is so tightly tied together, uh, not just within the neighborhood, but around the world. Uh, and I think, you know, that speaks to some of the... Uh, you know, the structural and, and uh, systemic or systematic issues that need to be addressed, um, you know, both now and and uh, irrespective of uh, uh, COVID-19, you know, some of the things that you highlight in your report, uh, which was written before, uh, before the pandemic, but, uh, you know, still remain true and maybe just become more true. So may maybe we can uh, spend a little bit of time looking into uh, some of those fundamental challenges that you're highlighting in the report. Then uh, maybe let's bring it back to the current times, because I do want to set some context, uh, you know, how things were leading up to now and, and how that relates. Sure. Um, so at, you know, the, the uh, very end of this detailed report, we walk, we really walk people through everything that we thought about and considered before we got around to saying, here's what the underlying problems are. 
Um, and if someone is, you know, Googling this and only going to read three pages, just, just skip to the end where <laughs> we have this. It's beautiful. I want you all to read it, but realistically, I know. Um, and the real underlying core challenges that have created the situation we had six months ago, three months ago even, um, there are a couple of things. One, we have not built enough housing. And this is not just about uh, keeping up with population growth. It's also about what has happened to our existing housing. It has aged over the time that we have not built. And that has uh, increased the problem even more and uh, contributed to the loss of supply of affordable, um, private market affordable uh, apartment options. So there's that the supply piece. The second is that, and this isn't a housing problem, but like you said, everything's connected. About 20% of households will not be able to afford any market rate rent in any market. Every single town, city, county is going to have families that need help in order to stay housed. Um, we don't have the kinds of safety net programs that ensure that people have that you know, minimum level of, of income support. Um, we do have a, a fairly decent uh, set of policies for rental assistance, but it only reaches about one in four of the people who are eligible. Um, to be eligible, by the way, you have to be very low income, so have income at 30% or less of the area median. Um, you also need to be currently paying 50% or more of your income towards your um, housing costs. Uh, you have to be a renter. And then in addition to that, there are priorities for families with kids, um, victims and survivors of domestic violence, uh, disabled folks, things like that. But one in four means that we are not serving the majority of the people who need help there. And that gap has real consequences. Um, the other thing is that we're not subsidizing building, uh, rehabbing, maintaining um, affordable, you know, capital A, capital H, affordable housing and, and properties built with uh, low income housing tax credits. So that's yet another gap between the chat, the the finances going into the system, and what it takes to just operate the system, um, when you're looking at uh, meeting the housing needs of the lowest income families. Uh, then the other pieces of this are um, that our housing markets are still really defined by the history of racial segregation in housing. Um, you know, that's not a surprise. It's something that. We all both live amidst for the most part and, you know, see in the course of our work on housing. But it's something that just, you know, you raise the $2 trillion uh, lost GDP at the, the top of the show. The costs of segregation ongoing are still really big. And they do mostly hit the people of color who've been segregated away from white neighborhoods and where that integration process is just has not happened since the Fair Housing Act passed. Um, and then finally, renters face not only a situation where in many places they don't have rights that would really make it easier to have uh, housing that was both more affordable and more dependable over time. 
Um, and in addition to having, you know, some pretty basic protections lacking, there's also the challenge of, you know, for example, I live in, in the DC area. If I were to move from my town of Silver Spring, about a 15 minute walk east to Tacoma Park, there are different renter rights issues going on. Um, if I were to move into DC or to Virginia, same thing. It's just really hard to be informed and know what your rights are and what's out there. That's, that's a great point. And it, it actually, you highlighted the last few pages of the report, I would say, uh, you know, and you've brought up, you know, some of the local issues uh, just now and that, that go back, you know, it, some of them are local, some of them are, are bigger than that. I think in the first few pages of the report actually are definitely worth a read as well, because sometimes, you know, we hear about how hard things are when you've got private development together with, you know, public actors and, and the difficulty of zoning, you know, and, uh, and all of the different pieces um, uh, that are involved in, in building and maintaining housing. I think an important part of the explanation for uh, the mismatch that's happened, um, I wonder if you could speak to um, that a little bit more in terms of the, how the, there's so many different parties involved in this. Sure. Yeah. Um... That is actually something that that I think you know we realized as we were writing, and we needed to keep checking our own like internal. Here's what player does what at what point in the process of going from there is no house here to someone has moved in. Um, that you know actually it is a very complicated ecosystem. Um, so there is you know especially when you're looking at producing uh, housing that is. Um, LIHTC, you almost always, there's a federal component, you have local, uh, both financing and regulations to meet. The zoning process is one that uh, has increasingly been getting attention as something that is an underlying driver of the lack of supply that we've seen, um, because not only is it just simply not legal to build apartments in many parts of many cities and towns, it's also easy to stop just about any housing project if you are uh, opposed and have a little bit of time on your hands. Um, So there are real challenges with all of those different parties and then having all of the different veto points or points where a project uh, can essentially just like go off track from where it had been and looking successful. Um, I have really just touched on like the regulatory and like uh, public approval of financing side, but then there's also the investors, um, the uh, people who help keep money flowing during the process. Um, there's like, it's, it seems, and I've, I've talked to some friends who are in like construction management type of roles, um, that no matter what, it takes a village, like there are going to be 30 different types of actors involved. Um, so it's one of those things that makes me glad that I am a researcher and not actually a developer um, because it is quite complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think that you capture as a part of that, that uh, some of these things also then lead to, like you mentioned, that it's difficult to develop LIHTC, um, LIHTC products for affordable housing. Um, much of the development has been on the higher end because that's where um, it's, it's been possible to build. 
And I think that plays into some of, you know, the, the income issues and, and the, where, uh, new housing isn't becoming available that's affordable and incomes are you know, not keeping up. And now you've got the income stresses that we talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. You know, I think that I started out this process hoping that I would be able to uh, say like, Hey, there are ways that we could get to building market rate housing that is affordable for someone making like just under the median income or something. And ultimately that's just very difficult and it can be done, but I think that it seems to be really dependent on like very localized market conditions. And so, you know, I, I am not a developer myself. I'm not penciling out deals day in and day out, but what I have come to appreciate is that the costs that make things so difficult are real. And that it's not like the granite countertop that pushes it over the edge of being affordable to someone with moderate income versus a higher income. It's really the delays that go into the process, the fact that land is just really, really expensive. Um, and then all of the, the costs, the regulatory costs of building, lots of which totally make sense. Um, and the, the costs need to get covered somewhere. And if it's related to housing construction, like impact fees and stuff, can totally make sense. But the degree to which those things add up and add up does mean that new construction is most likely going to be uh, aimed towards higher income renters. Um, and yeah, the supply crunch has not helped with that because if all you're building is luxury apartments, you have a bunch of people who can't really afford them, but that's their only option. You have a bunch of people who could afford them, but would rather move into homes that don't exist. Um, and then you don't have like the same ability of existing older housing to serve as uh, things that are more affordable, um, particularly not like buildings that stay in good condition and that are, you know, the kinds of welcoming, healthy places that you'd want to raise a family. It's harder to keep those on the market in an affordable way when everything will just get snapped up and flipped in a couple of months because of the pressures on rents. You know, in, in your report, you talk about sort of different, uh, different aspects of housing from affordable to naturally occurring to, uh, to market rate. And certainly I think what you're touching on there you know, speaks to the challenge of you know, not just we need to uh, uh, build new housing, uh, but we also need to preserve the existing stock, but not just preserve the stock, but also preserve its affordability. And sometimes those things uh, to a little to a little bit uh, run contrary, at least uh, temporarily, because if you're going to improve the stock, uh, you need some return on that uh, that investment uh, to improve it. Uh, so I'm curious, how did you focus on that in your report? That is something that I just found super interesting as like a, a puzzle to try to solve beforehand. And now I think it is so much more important because you're going to see rental properties lose value when that many people struggle to pay rent and help for them is like sporadic and not enough. That is most likely going to be the result in places where uh, the unemployment crisis is, is worse. Um, and you know, that means that they are in danger of being picked up, rehabbed, and then made unaffordable. 
I think one of the really interesting possibilities in that space is actually a, a, you know, a private market opportunity, and that is developing the kinds of financing tools that would allow, um, and this is particularly smaller landlords. A lot of these buildings are like fewer than 20 units, fewer than 10 units, um, but that would allow them to do those kinds of investments and pay them off over time at a rate that doesn't fully eat up all of the uh, returns that they would get, but that also doesn't require like an immediate overhaul in the amount of revenue that they'd be bringing in. Um, you know, I, I unfortunately have not yet seen like the set of really good products that I think can really fully get at the issue. But um, we also have been hearing from some nonprofits that have kind of started looking at that as one of the other areas of, um, you know, important ways of meeting housing goals in lower income communities. And they are actually making some progress on that front. So that always actually makes me uh, optimistic. You know, if, if you can figure out and provide proof of concept for a financial product when you like really, really aren't worried about profit, then sometimes the transitions to, you know, more mainstream providers is, I think, smoother. And, you know, I think we actually saw that in some ways with housing, like in the CDFI space earlier on. And I, I like how um, uh, you have these findings in segments of the market, like you say, so you're thinking about buildings that have, you know, less than 10 or 20 units and that there's, you know, some real opportunities there. And oftentimes when people think about the rental market, they, they don't think about some of those segments. Another area you touch on, which sometimes gets ignored, is the rural housing market. I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about the report as it relates to rural housing. Yeah, rural housing markets, I mean, you know, it's, it's a challenge because they, just like urban and suburban markets, everyone is different. But some of the big trends there are that the housing is aging, that because incomes are lower and the jobs outlook for the future is not great, it becomes pretty challenging to, uh, you know, fund maintenance, just like I, I had said, like, it's hard to do that and get a return on it um, in cases where you're not sure if you will be able to get that rental revenue going uh, forward. The other piece uh, of that is that single family rentals are actually a really big part of rural areas. And, um, you know, just as, as with apartment buildings, as those age, uh, you end up with many of the same challenges. And again, very few resources for like a small business owner landlord to actually be able to do maintenance and stuff over time. Um, construction costs are actually more expensive in rural areas. Uh, labor is more expensive because they have to get people to travel farther. Um, materials are more expensive because of transportation costs. Like it just, um, it's not easy. Uh, that said, um, some of the things that are really exciting in rural areas is the innovation that you see in uh, factory built housing. Um, you know, manufactured homes, I think people picture trailers and that is not what they look like anymore. Um, and modular homes where like, I love the way that they remind me of, of Legos, you know, you build the one floor, you build the other floor, and then you put them together with, uh, the connecting pieces. Um, and so those are trends that in rural areas actually, I think are, Again, things that can spread wider than that and uh, have positive effects in more places. 
You know, one of the challenges that you know we've seen in rural markets as we've looked into this is just operating at scale. And so, in some of these uh, you know newer innovations that you're seeing, uh, are you seeing some scaled operators there? Honestly, not not for the most part. Um, that is really a challenge, and you know, one of the the related challenges along with it is that um, because markets are different from place to place it's it just strikes me as difficult to have like a unified business strategy for uh rural housing there are a lot of like regional uh companies and nonprofits working on uh those issues but to be honest on the scale question like it would be great and if it's out there i don't know about it and folks should uh let me know so um you know, a lot of things, uh, as you say, are are kind of a tough nut to crack in this space. I think that, uh, but you're you, you cited before, kind of the North Star and how housing policy really affects uh, so many different things related to quality of life, quality of community, and uh, um, and you know, oftentimes when people look at the housing market, they think of that as it relates to home ownership. Uh, in your report, you kind of have a special kind of focus on on the rental market. I wonder if you could speak to um, kind of that North Star and and, and the rental market. Sure. Um, you know, if, if you look at both the long view of U.S. history and also like urbanized history across the globe, apartments and rentals are a really important part of every housing ecosystem. And in the United States, the homeownership rate has largely recovered, but more than 30% of uh, households are renters. And leaving them out of these uh, analyses just, for me, it didn't make sense because we know, first of all, that not everyone will at any point earn the income that would be necessary to purchase um, a home, that not everyone wants that. And I really think that it's important to remember, even if your perspective is that homeownership is best, that renters still need a lot of support, no matter what, if you want them to have the com- the conditions and the potential to become homeowners. And that's where I think that people's interests um, actually do align. And I was really glad to be able to, uh, in the report, you know, focus on people and households in general, and then break down the differences in in renters and owners on particular things. There's no reason that renting has to be inherently unaffordable or inherently unstable or inherently worse than being a homeowner. Um, You know, the, the big difference, of course, is the forced savings aspect and the equity building aspect. But, you know, if it were possible, to make the kind of savings uh, deposits that you are with a, a mortgage payment just in cash somehow. That's the point at which saying like, hey, let's question homeownership more is really like clear. Um, and in the meantime, just there has to be room for this in the discussion. So I, I was really happy that we were able to focus on both as well. Yeah, and I think I think I've seen the statistic somewhere. Like you say, about a, about a third are renters now, but almost every household that's like ninety eight or ninety nine percent of uh, people rent at some point. So it is uh, it is a constant part of the market. Do you think that are there more um, policy things that you want to circle back to? Yeah. So you know, one thing that I think is 
really useful to be thinking about right now is the connections between health and housing in a general way. You know, we've seen a lot of discussion of disparities uh, based on race and income in who is getting severely sick, where the outbreaks are worst and um, where death rates are, are highest. A lot of times that is tied to the conditions in the home. If you're living in a house with water damage or mold problems or infestations, you are more likely to develop respiratory uh, disorders that then when there is a respiratory pandemic, you know, really, really put a huge level of stress on your health. Um, another related thing is that people who, you know, the 99-ish percent of people who get COVID-19 and recover will be going home to recover in homes that can either support their health or continue to harm their health. And one of the things that, uh, you know, really matches up well the, the housing needs in the long term and the need for some economic stimulus right now, an area to look at is how to do the types of preservation that would make those homes healthy. What are the upgrades and uh, maintenance things that would address the, the challenges that lead people to have, um, you know, very different health outcomes throughout their lives? Uh, I think, you know, the opportunities there are something that are really worth thinking about. I think that's a great point. And thinking about this, I mean, I think that, you know, Corey and I talked to a lot of people on the podcast and in our day to day, um, you know, over over recent years about how difficult the housing problem has been and the, the mismatch between supply and demand and, and the you know, diminishing affordability. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, some of what comes about from this current crisis is a little bit of a reset and a little bit of a focus on what the, what the home is and uh, and the housing market and maybe um, an approach that that actually improves the housing market longer term. I love that. That's certainly how I'm trying to think about it, so that there's something really positive in there, because um, it is it's bleak when you're just looking at things like jobs and and cost of rent. But I also have been talking to a lot of people over the last uh, six weeks and the energy to make sure that that happens is there. And I, I'm, you know, I'm inspired. No, and You know, it certainly strikes me that, you know, before this, right, the home was, you know, one's place in the world, right? Uh, it's where you live, but it's also, you know, where you leave from every day to go out to work and, and uh, go about your life uh, throughout the rest of the day. Now your home is your world because you're not leaving the house very much. And that really puts a you know, strong emphasis on that uh, quality and stability of housing, uh, the health of the house, uh, the health that comes from the housing itself and uh, not just physical, but, but uh, mental health. And you know, there, there's a point uh, that you bring up in, in the report as well, that, that struck me as especially important, um, you know, that everyone benefits when families have, affordable, stable housing. You talk about, you know, some of those, uh, the benefits, not just to the families, but to those around them. So I'd like to go into that a little bit more. Um, and, and you bring up four points, education, healthcare, government, and, and business in addition to the, to the families. So can we talk about those four for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So on, on the education side, let's just dig into that 
a bit. What are the, the key impacts of stable housing on education? So I mentioned uh, earlier that housing instability is just this traumatic, very damaging uh, experience for a child to go through. Um, when you have lots of kids going through that within your community, that is the point at which your test scores suffer. And life is not test scores, uh, but it sure does matter for school budgets. Um, and so there's there's that. It can directly take money out of a school budget. There's also the part where, you know, your mission is educating children. And when they have been evicted from their home, it's hard to, you know, sit and be focused in class no matter what. Um, you know, at this point, there are 1.5 million kids who attend public schools but have housing that uh, is potentially um, unstable, insecure, living in a car, doubled up with friends, or experiencing homelessness. And that's a lot of our nation's school children. Um, so those, those are really uh, big challenges um, in the education space. You do see K-12 schools in some places doing some really innovative stuff around um, partnering with uh, courts to be able to get eviction data so that they would know proactively um, when students registered in the, the, the district uh, were experiencing that um, and, you know, be able to provide upfront extra outreach and support that can hopefully make a difference. And is certainly the, the education healthcare uh, nexus has become especially apparent now as you just think of with so many schools closed, uh, so many kids having a harder time getting uh, the, the breakfast and lunch that they often rely on at, at school. So let's talk about that relationship between housing and healthcare and education now. So what are you seeing on the healthcare front? Yeah, and you're right. The the locus there with kids who are hungry now, who used to eat three meals a day at school, um, well, two meals and a snack at school, uh, that is going to have long-term consequences as well. You know, any any child suffering from food insecurity is a tragedy. Kids should not ever have to go through that. But when you talk about millions of children losing that access, you know, that's 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 money that parents don't have to make up by just buying more food. There's not really a way to bridge that gap. Um, so you see it there. You also see the impact of housing unaffordability and instability on health. When you look at like mental and emotional health for kids living in a house that experiences instability delays their actual like cognitive and social development for real young kids you know, that can make it hard for them to have healthy social circles. It can make it more uh, likely to experience depression. You know, just just the way that something spreads out its effects can be really surprising. But at the same time, you know, if you if you live with a constant level of uncertainty that affects not just your life, but like, whether or not you have a place to sleep and a safe place to sit down and eat your breakfast, kids are aware of the tension of that and it really does uh, affect them. And then what happens to children 
when they have these experiences is really just overwhelmingly tragic and avoidable. But touching on adults as well, there are so many chronic conditions that have now been linked to uh, having these housing challenges. Um, I mentioned respiratory issues and allergies, but uh, depression and anxiety are also big, big problems for people who regularly struggle to make their housing payments or aren't sure if they'll be able to stay. Um, that has an effect on on everything from your physical health to your ability to uh, hold down a, a well-paying job. And again, just the ripple effects uh, spread out and out to all aspects of someone's life. So, and then on the the other side of housing, it also has uh, the ability to be a strong you know, economic driver, both for business and government. So you're taking care of the families at home and helping support better education. So how does that tie into business and government uh, benefit? So on the, you know, government side, there's the obvious, you know, property taxes uh, feed um, government's uh, revenues. And one way to get property taxes in the door is to have a small number of homeowners with extremely high value land. Or the other option is to have a more stable spread out base of people who pay um, and uh, have a little bit less of a lock on land that is so scarce. So there's that. Um, there's also just having a healthy consumer economy is really something, I mean, we're all seeing this right now as our favorite local places struggle to stay open and like there's only so many gift cards you can buy for the restaurant where you, you know, really love their pad thai. Um, those types of things, uh, particularly that keep money within a community, are really important. When you look at um, the costs of dealing with these issues, too, uh, one of the studies we reviewed in writing that report found that uh, there was a more than 10 to 1 return on providing emergency rental assistance to families to uh, avoid being evicted um, in terms of the difference between putting that $1,000 into the household's hands and then all of the spending that happens once a, ha a family has been evicted and needs to access other emergency services and uh, experiences the harms associated with eviction. So. Healthy, good housing, adding new homes, good for your tax base, good for your uh, the vibrancy of your local economy. Um, on the you know problem side, it just like is hugely expensive to help people once they've experienced the worst case outcome, rather than helping people with policies that provide enough housing in the first place. One of the things that was really, really obvious as we uh, mapped things out was that the places that had the most jobs added in the last 10 years are generally not the places that added the most housing. And, um, you know, that, that's not like a revolutionary finding. It was more a finding that confirmed, yes, this falls in line with other, what other researchers have uh, explored and learned about that same issue. But uh, when you lay it out on a map geographically, we're not just talking about the coasts. The link between 
adding new jobs and adding new homes and then the costs of housing, really, that is a tight link. So for employers, being able to get top talent um, and being able to know that your full workforce, not just like your C-suite and your engineers, uh, is going to be able to thrive in your area, housing becomes a big challenge. And we've actually seen increasingly not just like Google and Microsoft and Amazon putting big money into housing in their um, home cities, but also employers who are more like regionally important, really emphasizing the need to work with uh, local policymakers, developers, lenders, and try to find solutions that uh, shore up their ability to have a top-level workforce. That has that that that's something that really drives employers' concerns. No, that, that's so well said, and you know, just the last to bring it all together. There, you know, at the center, you you have a great graphic in the middle of this report that that illustrates this. At the center of that graphic is families. Uh, so we'd like to talk about that as a way to really wrap up this point and bring it home. Uh, you mentioned that home is not just where we leave in the morning and come home in the evening now it is our world just like housing itself is connected to so much more than housing when your world collapses to where you you live that also has really big uh implications for the rest of your life and you know i i am a childless married adult with cats which is i think like the ideal situation for right now um and <laughs> My friends who, you know, have already started their families or who are older and whose kids are, you know, well on the way to growing up are spending more time with those kids. And I think that, you know, there's opportunities in that, of course, but I'm also thinking about how difficult that is for families who are right now stuck together in an 800 square foot apartment that they know they just didn't pay for. And my heart goes out to them because that is a whole lot of anxiety packed into one small apartment that is now those people's world. So yeah, when I when I think about this, it, it always for me goes back to that family experience and, you know, what it means, not just to not pay rent, but in terms of what it costs you um, in your life that day, the next day, the next month. Um, so yeah, there's, there's challenges all around with housing and COVID-19. Um, I really do think that there's opportunities to bridge towards solving some of the bigger, longer term questions. And honestly, I think that when we start the analysis with family well-being, it can be easier to find solutions that meet the needs of all of the other stakeholders too, and that can be sustainable. Yeah, I think that was just extremely well said. And I think that the, uh, when you talk about how your heart goes out to uh, to the families that are affected right now, I think, I mean, I think that the report um, shows the heart that you had for the housing and the people in it the, when you created it. And I would just recommend to to listeners that uh, even though you've highlighted that the last six pages are really great, and I highlighted the earlier six pages, <laughs> that it, it really um, uh, it really is a fantastic report. That's a comprehensive look into uh, housing and. Uh, Catherine, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. It was a really great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, 
and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.